Hello and welcome to the Radity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. With the ever-deepening climate crisis, one group getting a lot of beef is the cattle industry. However, while a lot of focus has been placed on the environmental impact of cattle agriculture, little attention has been placed, at least publicly, on the effect of rising temperatures on the cattle themselves, and how we might ensure that, going forward, we maintain herds of productive, temperature-resilient animals. However, that is the topic of today's paper titled Genomic Selection Strategies for Breeding Adaptation and Production in Dairy Cattle Under Climate Change. This is part of the wider ClimGen project, which studies climate genomics for farm animal adaptation. But enough from me, let's meet our authors. Okay, I'm Ismus Kranden from the Natural Resources Institute Finland. I'm a professor in computational genetics. Okay, I'm Mike Bruford. I'm Professor of Biodiversity at the School of Biosciences at Cardiff University, and I was the leader of the ClimGen project, which this piece of work was part of. And I'm Juha Kantanen, Professor in Animal Genetics in Natural Resources Institute Finland, uh, like ISMO, and I'm doing research on animal genomics and conservation of animal biodiversity. Perfect. So this feels like an incredibly topical paper, as it's focusing on dairy agriculture and climate change. But interestingly, it's not really looking at the effect of cattle on climate change, which lots of people might suspect, but actually the other way around, the effect of climate change on the dairy cattle. So could one of you maybe just tell us a bit about the story behind this study? I think that should be you, Ismo. Okay, um, well, animal breeding, it has had a very large impact on, on dairy cattle when we talk about within breed or population breeding. However, when the environment is kind of more challenging, like in Africa, typically use crossbreeding and it allows changing the population quite rapidly. So when, when the climate changes fast, uh, quickly changing environment, we need a an approach for breeding that is rapid, and uh, we thought that uh, cross-breeding strategies might offer such a, an approach. And when we have a here kind of a two different traits in question that might be negatively correlated, like adaptation and high production, then basically the question is how to achieve make animals that have good characteristics for both in adaptation and production. Okay, great. So the idea is kind of trying to find a trade-off between being climate adapted and being good producers. Right. Perfect. Um, so you kind of mentioned breeding strategies there a minute ago, and I kind of wonder if you could just explain a bit more about the kind of breeding strategies you might be talking about and how much we know about the genetic basis of these traits that you're interested in looking at. Go for it, Ismo. Well, um, breeding strategies depend on what kind of population we have. Now we are talking about dairy cattle and the traits we are interested in. And what kind of information do we have on these traits and how we can get information to genetic evolution? How can we find which animals have the best genetics? And then we have the reproduction. How long does it take to get the next generation? So it's a question of, again, a trade-off. How long do we wait? Does this animal have a good genetics behind? And how early do we select the best animals? And this all gives boundaries on what kind of strategies do we have. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we had, the dilemma that we were really faced with is the sort of likely situation that's going to emerge where you're going to have a mixture of highly productive breeds that, you know, like Holstein Frisians and, you know, the predominant milking breeds in Europe. This is a European funded project. And those breeds, uh, we know a lot about their production and their productive traits and the heritability of those traits. But then they're not necessarily always going to be fit for purpose under um, extreme climate change scenarios. And so under those circumstances, you will want to be taking advantage of the locally adapted gene pools that are out there, but whilst not losing production traits. So the, the fundamental question is, what's the best strategy? Do you cross production traits into locally adapted breeds? Do you cross locally adapted traits into production breeds? Or do you try to select from within each breed to converge on a phenotype and a gene pool that is well adapted to a, you know, whether it be a population under sustainable intensification or whether it be in a, just in a different climate. It's that sort of the question that we were interested in asking. And you can't do those experiments with real animals over the timescales that we need. By the time you could do that, climate change is already, the, the 12 years is up, you know what I mean? So, so that's why we had to do it in silico. And if I may add, this climate change is a very huge challenge for the future animal production. And there are this uh, direct and indirect effect of climate change on livestock production. And one of the tools, how we can uh, adapt and even mitigate of climate change effects. So is the animal breeding. And the main idea of the project was to provide tools for the adaptation. Yeah, perfect. And yeah, as you were saying there a minute ago, this project obviously was done in silico because we don't have time to rear this many cattle. So I wonder if someone could just broadly describe what it was that you actually did for your simulations. I think that is you, Isma, again, sorry. <laughs> well, it's not only the, the time scale, but also the, this question of money. So simulation, um, we do, of course, a lot of simplifications on what it's like to be an animal, and we simulate the genetics and assume that there are genes that affect the traits, in this case, adaptation and production. And then we have genetic markers to those traits as well, so that in the simulation we don't use the information that we know actually what these genes are. We use markers. And then we use this marker information to try to find what is genetic value of each of the animals in the selection pool. And then we select the best ones and then make them and we get offspring, then do the evolution again, select and so on. Then we have different kind of strategies where we then have different kind of populations available for our selection. When we have done the simulation, we then look at what is the true genetic progress, because we know what's the underlying reality, the truth, and check which one was best. Thank you for describing the simulations. Like I know it's difficult to get them across. So hopefully people will go and actually read the methods because they're really interesting. But I wonder if you could maybe just give us some highlights of the results that you were finding. So I think that one of the interesting results is how this introgression should be done. So can you say something about that? So that what's the most beneficial way of doing it? Right. Perhaps one of the uh, new ways done here is the genomic introgression. Traditionally, introgression has been on single genes, uh, but 
in our case, the trades we are interested, they are affected by many genes, not just one or two or three, but several hundreds or thousands. Then we use genomic introgression where we are not particularly interested in if there are some certain genes that come with. And then we select the best animals using genomic information and then mate. And we try to get the parts of the genome that are associated with the positive effects of those traits from that uh, well-adapted or good production breed to this other breed that we are making. And it seems to be a very successful strategy that we saw from the simulations. It produced good results, the best ones, and we got the good genetic process. But not only that, it seems to be also uh, to have a lower risk compared to the other strategies. A couple of things, you know, just to add, um, I think we have every reason to believe that the architecture of traits that are involved in local adaptation and dairy production are going to be quite different, different levels of heritability, probably different numbers of um, regions of the genome implicated as well, with local adaptation quite likely to be highly polygenic and of lower overall heritability than the long-selected, highly productive traits. So I think that that, the, the challenge is going to be that the architecture of these two different kinds of phenotypic benefits that we want are likely to be very different. And ISMO simulations basically showed that the best way to do this is to introgress locally adapted genes, um, which have relatively low production value, into populations that have high production genetic traits, but low locally adaptive value. So that way around seems to be the most efficient way in the simulations, at least. No, great. So, I mean, I guess one of the really interesting things there is it sounds as though you've found some really interesting, really good strategies. So I wonder how you all think this research in your simulations might translate into a real world application in global dairy agriculture as we are facing a really rapidly changing climate. Yuha, that might be a good one for you from your perspective in terms of northern cattle breeds especially. Yeah, I think that in uh, in this case that to establish this kind of dairy cattle populations that have a high productivity and an adapted to environment, so you can use also biotechnological methods, for example, embryo flushings and speeding up genetic gain obtained from the breeding program. Then what is, from my point of view, I like this project because uh, we are utilizing the conserved animal genetic resources that there is in Europe. There is a project and projects to keep the old native breeds, which have typically adapted a local environment and they're typically very low productive, but they can have genes which could be useful for the future animal breeding. So this gives a practical example what kind of benefits societies can get from this conservation of these rare native breeds. Yeah, I agree. And, and and I think that within the context of the current discussions around sustainable intensification as well, that is something where this kind of an approach can come in because it's unusual to be able to manage, I don't know what you think you are, but it's unusual to be able to manage native breeds in a very intensive way, like we would do with many of the very commercial breeds that we have. So, mm. so that means 
maintaining rare breeds is a really good idea as an option value, but it may not actually get us out of the hole that we're in with climate change because it's just going to be too extensive and there'll be too much land required and too much carbon required to actually uh, maintain lots of native breeds. And so one potential way of producing enough animal products that we want to produce, what such as milk um, in the future, is by putting these genes into more productive breeds, you can potentially sustainably intensify under a climate change scenario. Now, that's not to say that we're advocating the loss of these native breeds. You will always need those native breeds, but for actual large-scale production requirements... Um, you will need to be able to uh, take advantage of their genetics, not necessarily of their production system. Yeah, no, for sure. And I guess I kind of only have one last question, and it might kind of feed off on that. So obviously, this is some really interesting results in terms of dairy agriculture and, you know, cattle agriculture more broadly. But I wonder what you think the broader impact and the broader application of this kind of research might be. Well, I think the um, the methodologies here are potentially applicable to many different agricultural breeding systems. Basically, the nice thing about this kind of an approach is that you can decide what end goal you want to see within a particular production context and use this kind of simulation approach, provided you know a little bit about the architecture of the traits, or you can make some assumptions about the architecture of the traits, and you can simulate whatever it is that you want to try to to do. I mean, that's the power of simulations, of course. The the weakness of simulations is that they're just simulations. Yuha, Ismo? Well, that's to sum it up. They are just simulations, but uh, hopefully good ones. No, it is it is really good. I do hope that people go and read it because I do think that it, it's a very broadly applicable methodology. Um, and best way to end this is if one of you could just remind us of what your paper is called and just tell us about your collaborators. Do you want me to do that, guys? Yes, yeah. yes, please. Okay, genomic selection strategies for breeding adaptation and production in dairy cattle under climate change. This was part of the ClimGen Joint Programming Initiative project funded as a a European research area project with partners in the UK, in Finland, in Romania, in France, in Spain and Italy. So it's, yeah, it was part of a large uh, multi-centered project uh, looking at a, a wide diversity of different uh, components of climate a- adaptation in, in livestock. Perfect. Well, hopefully people will go read the paper and then check out the, the work of the wider project. And thank you all for taking the time to speak to the Heredity Podcast. Okay, okay. thank you very much. Please do go and give this paper a read. It's a fascinating look at an important, yet I feel often neglected aspect of climate change research. And the methods do have a much broader application. You can find it on the Heredity website, that's nature.com forward slash hdy, where you can also find out how you can get your work published in the journal. And before we sign off, Dr. Kat Arney is just going to give us a brief reminder of why Genetics Unzipped should be your next podcast stop. In this episode of Genetics Unzipped, we jump into a genetic time machine, using DNA to step back into the past and discover fascinating stories about ancient populations. And as the reality of direct-to-consumer whole genome sequencing dawns, with all its implications for people and their families, DNA is also taking us into the future. But is this really a good idea? Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, sometimes I can't help but get a little bit of topic envy. Anyway, make sure you go and give it a listen. But that's us for today. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetics Society. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. 
And if you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Brigan. Tune in next time.